uh, Rebecca said to Marion and Lee, wait, I have something that I think might facilitate your mission. And what she had, what the arrows were, they were combustible arrows designed to be discharged from a musket. They were called musket arrows. And while they were unusual in the 18th century, they were not unheard of. They had been used to great advantage during the English Civil War in the 17th century, and one 17th century historian described them as being effective at sea to burn the sails of ships or on land to disorder men. And since they were effective at sea, it's very possible they were still being used aboard some 18th century merchant vessels. These were African arrows? They were given to him by an African. Okay. They were combustible, they were musket arrows. Wow. So I'm not sure they were African because they were using them in England in the 17th century. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are with Margaret Peggy Pickett and her book, Rebecca Bruton Mott. This is actually the second episode uh, where we find ourselves on the banks of the Congaree at Rebecca Mott's uh, new house in January of 1781. And then what happens from there? Who all is there? Okay, well, at the house we have Rebecca, we have her 16-year-old daughter Frances, her 12-year-old daughter Mary, um, we have her niece Polly Bruton, her niece by marriage, Polly's probably in her mid-20s, and then we have um, Rebecca's sister-in-law, Martha Mott Dart, and her children. They're all getting used to being in the new house when the British arrive and they tell Rebecca that they are commandeering her house, that they're going to fortify it to use it as a supply depot. According to Polly Bruton, who told Alexander Garden her experiences at Fort Mott in 1783, according to her, Lieutenant McPherson, who was the British commander, allowed Rebecca and the others to stay in the house while the fortifications were taking place. So, but when they were finished at the end of March or first part of April, he asked them to leave because he said now that the fort was finished, it was likely that the Americans would attack it and he wanted the civilians gone. So Rebecca and the others moved back to the farmhouse that they had lived in previously. The British decided to call their new supply depot Fort Mott. And they were developing these supply depots because partisan fighters like Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter were disrupting their supply chain and they needed these supply depots in order to maintain their outposts in the backcountry. So Fort Mott was an important post for the, for the British. The reality is they were behind the lines, far behind mm -hmm. the lines at this point, yeah. right? And yeah. so they're bringing ships into Charleston and this is one of the outposts that they would would stop off at? Right, the first one was Fort Watson, okay. which was built on the Indian Mound, um, and then um, it was Fort Mott, and then Fort Granby. Okay, right. So these were, um, this, this gave the supply wagons a safe place to stop and they spend the night. Sometimes they would just offload goods there. Um, so you might have goods at Fort Mott that were intended for Camden, and then later they would be sent there um, or up to Fort Granby. So they were places where they would store supplies 
but also places where um, the supply trains could safely spend the night. And then, of course, they would have patrol the Congaree River Road mm. to try right. to keep it safe. And McCord's Ferry is uh, not far from from uh, Fort Mott. So this was actually at a, at a very pivotal, pivotal yeah. point in that right. supply trail. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's interesting. All right, then what happened? So they ran them out. They so, ran they, them out right. the so, they're, so they're at the farmhouse, and on May 6, 1781, uh, American forces led by Francis Marion and Colonel Henry Lee, Light Horse Harry Lee, arrive to lay siege to Fort Mott. They decide I mean, that Rebecca's house was very heavily fortified. Um, we don't know exactly what the house looked like, but it was either two or three stories high. The British had built a palisade that was nine feet high around the house. In front of the palisade was a 10 to 11 foot wide earthen embankment or rampart. In front of the rampart was a seven and a half foot wide, six foot deep ditch. And 20 to 30 feet from that was an abatis, a barrier of felled trees with uh, branched ends pointing outwards. When Marion saw it, he called it obstinate and strong. So um, they decided, the, um, the American forces decided to um, surround the fort. Marion and his men uh, encamped to the southeast of the fort and Lee and his men encamped in the vicinity of the farmhouse. And Rebecca, always the gracious hostess, invited Lee to make his quarters inside the house, an invitation that he readily accepted. Sure. Um, I think it's interesting, um, just a little lighter side of, of war, Lee's legion um, is encamped around the farmhouse, and we have Francis there, who is a uh, 16 and a half going on 17 year old lady, young lady, and we have John Middleton. This John Middleton is the youngest son of William Middleton, who was Henry Middleton's brother, but William had inherited the family property in England and had gone back in the 1750s to live in England. But he always remained a very loyal South Carolinian, and so he supported the colonies. So his son John came over to join in the fight for independence, became a member of Lee's Legion, and he is encamped around the house. And two years later, he and Francis were married. So I think they fell in love during the siege of Fort Mott. Okay. Just, a little, just little side, a little story, side there. story there. Yeah, that's a good story. Um, the plan to take the fort, the Americans were going to dig an approach trench called a sap toward the north wall of the fort. And they were gonna dig it in a zigzag fashion so that the defenders would not have a straight shot at the workers. Right. To the east of the fort, they were going to put a mound of dirt and they were gonna put an art their artillery piece there. They had a six pounder with them. Green had given it to right. them. Right. The British inside Fort Mott have no usable artillery. Now, when the sap is dug close enough to the abatis, then Lee's infantry, with their bayonets fixed, are going to charge through the abatis and charge the north wall of the fort. Fire from the six-pounder and Marion sharpshooters are going to keep the defenders off the wall while the attack is taking place. So everything's progressing nicely. 
work is, is going on on the SAP. On the evening of May 10th, a courier arrives from General Green for Marion. And Green says, Lord Rawdon, the commander, British commander at Camden, is moving out of Camden with his entire army. And he urged Marion and Lee to redouble their efforts to take Fort Mott. So the next day, which is the 11th, Marion and Lee pushed the workers to continue digging on the sap all through the night. But by the next day, of the 12th, the sap is still not close enough to the abbotty for them to attack. And they know that they have to attack quickly before Lord Rawdon's relief force arrives. The space inside Fort Mott is very small because the British have built the palisade walls two to three feet from the house on three sides, leaving a small open plaza in the, on the east side. So if they could set fire to the house, the British would have to surrender or they'd be burned alive. Mm. So now Marion and Lee had the unpleasant task of telling Rebecca that they were going to have to set fire to her brand new house. But instead of being upset when told, Mar uh, Rebecca replied, according to Lee's memoirs, that she was grateful for the opportunity to contribute to the good of her country, and she would watch the approaching scene with great delight. Now, I doubt if those were Rebecca's exact words, but I think Lee has captured her feelings right. perfectly. Um, eight, in the 18th century, women had very few opportunities to influence the outcome of a military conflict. And here Rebecca was given an opportunity to make a meaningful contribution, a contribution that would in all likelihood result in the expulsion of the British from South Carolina. Because without their supply depots, they, they can't maintain their outposts in the backcountry. Sure. So she was grateful. She was grateful to have this opportunity. Now it was at this point that Rebecca remembered a quiver full of arrows which had been at the mansion house, the plantation house, that Polly Bruton had spied. Polly told um, Alexandra Garden that when she left the house, they were getting ready to leave the house. She saw the quiver of arrows, and she described them as being a novelty given to Jacob Mott by a favorite African. And she brought them with her to the house for safekeeping. Rebecca stored them on the top of an old wardrobe in the farm, farmhouse. So uh, Rebecca said to Marion and Lee, wait, I have something that I think might facilitate your mission. And what she had, what the arrows were, they were combustible arrows designed to be discharged from a musket. They were called musket arrows. And while they were unusual in the 18th century, they were not unheard of. They had been used to great advantage during the English Civil War in the 17th century, and one 17th century historian described them as being effective at sea to burn the sails of ships or on land to disorder men. And since they were effective at sea, it's very possible they were still being used aboard some 18th century merchant vessels. These were African heroes? They were given to him by an African. Oh, they were combustible, right. they were musket arrows. Wow. So I'm not sure they were African because they were using them in England in the 17th century. Boy, that just opens up another Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs>
How interesting is that? Yeah. Okay, all right. So, so they were not Indian arrows. It was no. not an Indian bow and no, arrow. absolutely that not. That I have heard from a historical perspective for years. Right, that's, that's another mystery about the, the arrows. But interestingly enough, arrows like those were used at the Siege of 96. A British officer wrote that the Americans tried to set fire to the barracks by using musket arrows, and he describes them. And he said these arrows were used to great effect at Fort Mott, but they weren't successful at I the Siege you. of 96. So they, they, are, they are a real thing. I wonder if they were the same arrows. They just took them up. You know, I asked Steve Smith that, and he's the the archaeologist that Mm -hmm. uh, has done a lot of um, work at 96 and at Fort Mott, and he said they would have been very easy to make. Okay. So he doesn't. I guess there's a possibility they were, but that that was my first thought was, oh, they took the rest of the arrows with them, but but I don't know whether that's true or not. But it um, it, it's an interesting thought, you know. So at noon. On the t- May 12, 1781, those arrows were used to set fire to the roof of Rebecca's so house. So it wasn't nighttime. It was no, at it noon. was noon. Okay. And they said that the um, the sun had dried out the roof and made it just perfect for uh, right. igniting. So British soldiers then climb up on the roof to put out the fire, and of course they come under fire from the artillery piece and Marion sharpshooters, and so they have to go back inside the house. At this point, the British surrender, soldiers rush in, they put out the fire, and they save Rebecca's house. So by this time, it's the middle of the afternoon. So the ladies at the farmhouse are getting ready for dinner, because 18th century people ate their main meal of the day between 2 and 4 o'clock. So Rebecca decided, in an act of graciousness and generosity, to invite all the officers to dinner. That's the, the Continental officers, the militia officers, and the British officers. Now, Lee describes this dinner in glowing terms, and he added that although Rebecca was warmly attached to the defenders of her country, the engaging amiability of her manners left it doubtful which set of officers constituted those defenders. Charming and gracious as always, right? Killed him with kindness. Yes. <laughs> that is a great story, isn't it? Going down another rabbit hole here. So they were they were laying siege and digging their trenches, and then Nathaniel Green sends a letter to Francis Marion and Lee and says, you need to double your efforts because mm-hmm. Rowden has left Camden and he is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. He may be coming to you. He may be going to Fort Granby where Sumter's at, don't know where he's going, but you need to double your efforts. Yeah. Who were the uh, the people building the ditches or, or digging the ditches? Who were they? Um, the enslaved workers on the plantation and enslaved workers from neighboring plantations. Do we know that for a fact or are we just, we just guessing? I'm not sure. I, I remember reading that somewhere, but I don't know whether that person had documented it, but okay. I'm just thinking that that would be the logical explanation, although I also think that the um, soldiers also worked on it, because they seemed to be working in relays. They would work for four hours, and they would be off for four hours. Okay. 
So I think it was, I, I would have to think that it was a combination of both um, enslaved workers and, and the soldiers. Yeah, that's always, uh, for me, that's always one of those things that is a, is a glaring uh, bit of information that's always left out. Who, mm -hmm. who was it that actually built mm -hmm. the ramparts? Who was it that mm -hmm. actually built the, the ditches and, the, and those sort of things? I think for the British, they may have, um, Mount Joseph Plantation was producing something, whether it was indigo or uh, raising cattle or it was, so there were, there were, was an enslaved workforce okay. on the plantation. So um, the British probably used those workers to help uh, with their fortifications. Do we have any uh, historical record from those uh, peoples who were, who were enslaved at that time? Do we have anything along those lines? Or I don't just, think so. That's such yeah. a big hole. You know, in today's army, in order for an army to go into the field, you have to have so many support mm -hmm. groups for that army. You have to have a quartermaster. You have to have somebody supplying them with the food and the, the mm -hmm. clothing and the, the log all those logistics that come along with that. You've got to move them. In many cases, those support roles were supplanted on both sides by enslaved yes. workers. Although we don't have historical record, mm -hmm. you can certainly infer some of that yes. in, into that. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Well, what happened to Rebecca after after this battle? Um, the house was sort of restored. The palisades were taken down. All the ditches were filled in. And they just moved back in to the house. And Lee went on uh, a couple of days later to take Fort Granby. And then, of course, they Green also um, laid siege to 96. And then Rawdon came to the relief of 96. And, and uh, Green then ends up in um, the high hills of Santee resting his troops for the summer. And now all of the British outposts have been abandoned. But there's still a standing army, British standing army in the field, and Green wants to eliminate it. Now this time Rawdon has gone back to England, and uh, I think it's a Stuart. Colonel Stuart is now in charge of the army. Stuart crosses McCord's Ferry in August or late July and takes up residence at Belleville Plantation, which is one mile from, from uh, Mount Joseph. So Green is in the high hills of Santee, and he wants to confront Stuart. So he moves up to Camden, and he comes across, but by the time he gets to McCord's Ferry to cross over, Stuart has left. He wanted to be closer to his supplies from Charleston, so he's moved to a place called Utah Springs. Okay. So Green shows up at Mount Joseph and he camps out there for a while. He's got Governor Rutledge with him. And a couple of days later, he moves off to meet Stewart at Utah Springs. Rutledge stays at Mount Joseph. So if Stewart had stayed later or Green had arrived earlier, that battle would have taken place right around. Fort Mott. And Utah Springs was a pretty significant yes, battle. Yes, it was. Uh, in South Carolina. Kind of a stalemate there toward you know, mm -hmm. at the end of the battle, but it was a back and forth 
bloody, oh, it, it was. bloody battle. It's funny because um, Green sent Rutledge an, uh, a, a message after the battle. Um, we've had a bloody battle, but victory is ours. I thought that was interesting that he claimed victory, and of course Stewart's also claiming victory. Right. But you might say that Green did win because after that the British retreated into Charleston. Well, what a cool story. Tell us the book, tell us the name of the book and where they can find it. Again. Okay, it's Rebecca Bruton Mott, American Patriot and Successful Rice Planter, 1737 to 1815. Available at Amazon, Barnes Noble, and from the publisher, Evening Post Books. Uh, we thank you for sitting down with us. One question I always try to ask if we have a little time, and I think we have a little time today, is what does liberty mean to you? Oh, to me, liberty means being able to think and act for yourself. It means having choices, being able to choose the path that you want to follow in life, and to be able to choose your religious and political views without interference from authorities. It means living without fear of oppression. Thank you so much. You're Appreciate welcome. It.